encourage them uh, to this evening, and I hope you make plans to be there um, as we share with them uh, our time together. Um, They are going to be joining our team that will be going out to Dearborn uh, this week, end of this week, for the Arab Festival and uh, praying for opportunities to share the gospel there among the Arabs that live in that area. And uh, we want to remember that in time of prayer at the end of our time together as there will be a, a pretty large portion of our folks that will be there next Sunday uh, for that work. And so just want to bring that to your attention. I want to uh, continue a subject that we started a couple of Sundays ago in talking about the Holy Spirit. We uh, first looked at this as we were getting to uh, Pentecost Sunday. And I uh, want to take a few weeks to talk about who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. This is a, a great um, point of release for me in learning who he is and what he does. I'm afraid most of us start making assumptions about what our job descriptions are and we start taking on too much. And we start assuming for ourselves too much. Uh, and we feel the stress and the anxiety of that. And uh, it's important to remember who he is and what he does. Uh, there is a, a story of the um, American gold rush out west um, that followed after the one that was North Carolina. I don't know if you knew that it first started in North Carolina, but the, the one that we uh, note in uh, history more is the one out west. And the land that was first, uh, some of the first gold was found, was owned by a man by the name of Colonel Sutton. He had on this land this rich gold vein. The only problem was he never knew it was there. And so he sold that land for riches, not realizing that the riches was in his possession the entire time. I think that describes many times believers not knowing who the Holy Spirit is and what God has made available through the Holy Spirit. And often, we sell what belongs to God through, through the Holy Spirit, and we start trying to find riches and things of worth in our jobs, in our relationships, in our stuff, in the little things of life, and we are selling the real riches that God has provided for us so we can have pauper things. Uh, uh, it's Jesus, or God described it this way, that we have forsaken the, the rivers of life and gone to broken cisterns to find identity and hope in our life. And so, I want us to go to John chapter 14 this morning, as we look and read verse 16, and read really through verse 26, I just want to kind of give an introduction of who He is, the nature of the Holy Spirit, as well as we look at some of the work of the Spirit. We're not going to be able to exhaust all the Bible mentions of this, but just some that's found in John 14, uh, verse 16 through 26. This is uh, part of the discourse that Jesus began in the upper room. Uh, This began with the the Lord's Supper and continues on as they walk through the Garden of Gethsemane. And so this is one of the last teachings of Jesus to his disciples before the cross. He is preparing them for what is about to happen and is ensuring them, encouraging them 
for what will go ahead, uh, what will happen in the days ahead when Jesus will not be there in bodily form with them. And so this is a great time, an appropriate time for Jesus to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit and how things will continue on. Chad and Amanda, I think this is fitting for you as well, as God has used uh, this church body, uh, the Holy Spirit working through this church body to encourage you, to challenge you, to help you grow, to be a greenhouse, if you will, for the Great Commission. But I want you to understand that as you leave this body, you have not left the source. Alright? God has used this church body. God will use others. But the source goes with you as we go um, in life. And so, uh, let us read this passage, uh, verse 16 through 26. And let's stand as we read this together, recognizing this as God's word. And I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my father And you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and he will come to him and will and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send to my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. You may be seated. So I want us to first understand a little bit about the nature of the Holy Spirit. As we read in this passage, Jesus is seeming to make clear that this Holy Spirit is the same kind as Christ himself. He is the same kind as Christ himself. I I want you to note in verse 16 how Jesus introduces this one called the Holy Spirit. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another Another to be with you forever. When he says that, he is saying that this one that is coming after me is of the same sort of me. And he's another. He uses that word and it puts puts the Holy Spirit on the same plane as Jesus himself. In fact, there's a couple of words uh, that the Greek can use uh, for the word another. Uh, One is uh, the word that refers to uh, another of the same kind. And then there's another word that's important in the Greek that refers to another of a different kind. Because we can use that same word to refer to both. Well, the word used here is, as you guess it, another of the same kind. The Greek grammar, the Greek word choice, implies and brings into this meaning of this is not a different one or a different type. This is of the same same type as me, as Jesus who is the anointed one, who is when he says, when you see me, you've seen the Father, you're going to have another type like that, who when you uh, know him, you will know the Father. 
And so it is of the same kind or a, a same kind of, of Christ. And this one, though, will be with you forever. As opposed to Jesus, who in bodily form will be with them only just a few more days when you include the ascension or include the, the resurrection appearances. But this one will be with you forever. I read that and it caught my mind. And as I thought, you know, when Jesus gives this promise, he is saying that there is one like him, one like the Father, who is God, who is with us. And, and later on, he says, will be in them us, but will be with us, not just to the end of this life. This is a promise of eternal life right here. It is a promise that when we die, the same one will be with us there. It is the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God. It is the Holy Spirit who is God. And so when he says that you are in Christ, the Spirit of God is in us, it is our assurance that when we die, we will not cease being with God. Now, Sometimes we think of eternal life as something that happens when we die. We think of it merely as a location. Jesus says this is life. This is eternal life that they may know the Father. Eternal life is not something that happens when you die. It's not a place you go when you die. Eternal life is a quality of living that begins the moment the Spirit of God becomes part of your life. It is to walk and know God. And so when we die, it is just simply a ceasing of this fleshly life, the presence of sin, and a fuller realization of what we've already come to know, God the Father. Do you understand this? This is why it is such a, uh, a contradiction when you see someone who says they are a believer and a Christian, but they do not walk in the Spirit. That is such a contradiction. It is the very essence of heaven. And then you say, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to walk in the Spirit now. That is a contradiction of the highest order. It cannot be. And so he says, He will be with you forever. That's a great promise. To know that when I go through hard times, times when I feel like He's not there, I go to this Word and I see No, Jesus said He would be there. Though I may not feel Him, I believe He is there. The nature of the Holy Spirit, He is of the same kind as Christ. But we keep on reading uh, this one. And and by the way, this is not talking about Muhammad. Alright? This is where uh, those who practice Islam will read this verse and say, See? Jesus said that there would be coming another that would come, and his name is Muhammad that has come and gives us fuller revelation of God. And this is why they say that Islam trumps Christianity, and they pin it on this verse. Now, the only, well, several problems with that. Uh, one, this one that he refers to, in this same talk, Jesus refers to this one in John 16, in the same night, in the same conversation, he says that this one will come to glorify me, Jesus. Now, Muhammad does not glorify Jesus. 
You can go to a nation dominated by Islam and it'll look strangely different from the Islam you see in North America. Islam in another country that's, that dominates that country, well, if you just talk about Christ and you start proclaiming Christ as someone other than prophet, then your life is forfeited. That is not glorifying of Jesus Christ. And so, just in John 16, it tells us that this is not the Muhammad that he's talking about. You know that, Chad, Amanda, though you will live in a country that will sell say otherwise and will call me a heretic worthy of death for saying what I'm saying now, uh, you know the Spirit of God is within you. This is not a new thing. This is something that believers have dealt with for hundreds, thousands of years. And so He will give you another to be with you forever. Verse 17, what is this nature of the Holy Spirit? Even the Spirit of truth. He is one, a spirit, and He is of truth. And so when we hear the Word of God, you need to understand the Word of God and the Spirit of God go hand in hand. The Spirit of God will take you along truth. The Word of God will take you along the Spirit of God and vice versa. I've often heard said uh, that if you have all spirit and no word, you blow up. All right? If you have all word and no spirit, you dry up. But if you have the Spirit and the Word of God together, you grow up. And it is the marrying of the two that the Spirit of God will take you along this way. Uh, I've often I shared with you when we were studying Galatians together that the law does not perform a, a ladder to get us to heaven, but it provides the rails from which we'll go. Now, what is the engine that drives us on the rail? It is the Spirit of God. It is not our own efforts. It's not our own attempts at accomplishing the law. It is the Spirit of God that is in our life that leads us along truth, leads us along the Word of God, leads us along the law of God, but never, ever do we rest in our own measures and our own abilities to do it, but we trust in the power of God's Spirit working in us. Now, it gets a little tricky. We'll talk about this in a little bit. But as you find that if God sets you apart in a place of authority, and authority comes from God, that He will give you some means to influence. If you're a parent, He's granted you authority over your children, and He has given you some means. If you're in government, He's granted you authority in a a national sense, and He's given you some means. But one of the things we understand that God will work through the means, but we don't trust in the means. I don't trust in my parenting abilities, my parenting wisdom. I trust in God who will work through those things. Now, it seems subtle difference, but I'm going to tell you it is a huge difference between whether you will trust in Lord or you'll trust in chariots. It is infinite difference. So it is the spirit of truth that drives us down truth that will go us, take us along the way of the word. Even the spirit of truth. And so this nature of the Holy Spirit is, is one, he's the same kind as Christ. Two, he's the spirit of truth. But third, he is a person. Even the spirit truth of truth. All right. Now, normally when I use the word spirit, if I'm going to use grammatically correct words, pronouns following it, I'm going to use the word it. All right. But notice what happens. Though the word spirit grammatically is an, a neuter, an it, but notice what happens. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees 
him, nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Notice the pronouns. Refers not to an it which would have been grammatically correct. It refers, he, he goes grammatically incorrect for a purpose. Because the Spirit is a He. He is a person. The Bible goes on and says that the Spirit can be grieved, can be quenched. It is a, He is a person that we must t- pay attention to. When we disobey God, when we disobey the Word, we are rejecting a person. You may say, well, Pastor, you just say some crazy stuff from time to time. Listen, if I'm explaining the Word of God and applying the Word of God, be very careful how you respond to that. That is, the Spirit of God working through the Word. And you could so quickly dismiss me, but you cannot dismiss the Spirit of God. You do so at eternal peril. It is, he is working. He is someone to know. He is someone that dwells with you. And it's interesting, at present tense, he dwells with you. He's talking to the disciples at the time. Jesus is saying, the Spirit of God is with you now. But, he says, and will be in you, referring to a future tense, that there's going to be a new dynamic at work, that things change after the ascension of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, you see cases and points in time where the Holy Spirit came upon a person and dwelt a person for a season and time, but he's usually not for a permanent basis. But in the New Testament, a new thing has, has begun, which was prophesied in the Old, in which we become temples, where the Spirit of God dwells within us. And so he is not only with us, he is in us. And as a church, he's referring, the, the you here is plural, referring to the body of believers. He's saying, the Spirit of God is with you. And he's in you. So what's really tricky about this is as I'm talking about him, he is here. As you are listening about him, he is here. And he knows what's in your heart. He's not just here invisible. He's here in your spirit, in your person. And if you find yourself rejecting the things of this word, he knows that you are rejecting him, grieving him. As I am sitting here listening and and to myself talk, I know the Spirit of God is knowing my heart. And I want to assure you, my hope in any of these words hitting home with you is not in my ability or my grammar. Or any kind of creative sense that I've got. If anything ever hits home with you. Know it's God talking to you. It's the Spirit of God speaking to you. And what you do with that message that's put upon your heart matters. Because it's whether or not you're going to obey God or not. Whether or not you're going to worship God or not. With what is impressed upon your heart from the Word of God. He is a person. Verse 18, And I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, it's interesting here. Jesus brings out distinction between Him and the Spirit. 
you need to understand that when we talk about this, we're talking about the Trinity. The Trinity is simply this. There's one God who has eternally existed in three persons. There is one God who has eternally existed in three persons. Now, it is not three gods. That would be polytheism. That is rejected in the Bible. In fact, in the Shema, in Deuteronomy 6, there is one God. Here, O Israel, there is one God. There is the unity that's always given in, in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. But then there are some who say, well, there's one God, but there's three different modes that you see God work in history in. Now, here's the problem with that. The Bible doesn't say that. What do you do? It's like, okay, well, he's the father here in the Old Testament, and then, and then in the New, in the Gospels, he is, he is, uh, the son, and then maybe in Acts, he is the Holy Spirit, and he's three different modes, like different, three different, uh, forms that you find him, but never the same at one time, because that would just be impossible. Well, what do you do at the baptism, when God the Father speaks out with a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, and the Spirit of God ascends upon him as a dove, or like a dove. In other words, there's a bird coming down. It was the Spirit of God that came down, like a dove. Father, Son, Spirit, at one time and place in history. You'll find that there are quite a few who actually believe this. Christian contemporary group, Phillips, Craig, and Dean is one. Uh, some of you are maybe familiar. I've used to listen to them. But they are down this line of thought of, of what they believe, that there is a modalism. A one-ism is uh, one way of looking at this, of how they call it. But this is not what you see in Scripture. Then there are, are some who say, well, this Holy Spirit, is just a, it's, it's like a God force. And it's kind of like Star Wars. I mean, there's a pill of that, oh, wow, you know, like, but it, it's not just a God force. It's referred to, he's referred to as a person. Now, you say, well, pastor, all right, explain this for me. <laughs> I can't. I can't explain it. I can share with you the teacher that the, the scripture reveals this. How this works, I can't quite grasp. I understand that if God is love, that there is, must be a, a way to share this love. And so there must be, by necessity, a, a, another person within the Godhead, the Father and the Son, uh, the, the love sharing with one another. If God is love, this, this has to be of the essence where that can happen. And for us to know Him, uh, we have to have some way of seeing Him. And that comes through the Son of God's description, not our own uh assignment of what God looks like. And so if there is this essence between the Father and Son, if there's this relationship that is eternally existence, there is a, a um, uh, an energy or there is a, a spirit that has uh, been there always from an eternity between the two that is such a power that it takes on a life of his own and becomes the Spirit of God. And there's these three that come together and they're separate, but yet there's a oneness and unison. But how does that happen? I don't know. We don't know by explanation. And that is one of the basics of the Christian faith. 
Because we believe there is a God who ultimately is unexplainable. He is not of our making. We are made in His image, not He of our image. If He is made of our image, then He's explainable. Some people, well, someone just wrote this stuff, made up this stuff. Listen, how can you make up something you can't explain and say, I want all the world to follow this? The very fact that it's unexplainable speaks, I believe, to the validity of what we're reading. We know by revelation, revelation, by by using our reason, it takes us to revelation, to believe that what this is is of God. But know that revelation will take us where reason cannot go. Revelation will take us where explanation cannot go. Often in the questions that we ask God, and we say, God, explain yourself, please. Explain why you do what you do. We see in Scripture, rarely, if ever, does God ever explain Himself. But what you do see time and time again is his, He reveals Himself. Because He knows that your greatest need is not an explanation. Because you'll just argue with it. The greatest need that you have is Him. And so He reveals Himself. We see in verse 17... He makes this distinction. He says, He will be in you. Not Jesus, but He will be in you. But then in verse 18, He says, I will come to you. Some folks will believe He's just talking about the resurrection. I think that in the context, it seems like He's talking a little bit more, referring to the Pentecost. So He says, He, then in verse 18, I says, I will come to you. And verse 23, He says, The Father and I will come. So which one's coming? Jesus, the Father, both the Father and the Son, are the Spirit. Which one is it? It doesn't matter when you have one, you have all three. And that's what Jesus is saying. When the Spirit is there, you have the Father, you have the Son. That is why when we reject and grieve and quench the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, we are rejecting God the Father. We are rejecting God the Son. And do not fool yourself in thinking that if you lived in the times of Jesus, that you would follow Him wherever you go if you do not follow the Spirit of God in your life. And so, He makes distinctions even this. And then He says in verse 18, I will, never, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Let a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live you also will live. So though our heartbeat stops, our spirit continues on because Jesus' heart doesn't stop. And His Spirit is in us. It talks about this idea the world will not see us or see the Spirit or see Jesus anymore. We'll talk about that in a little bit. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Here it is, Pentecost, and Peter is asked to explain what's happening. He says, we're not drunk, it's too early in the day for that. But look, this is what was prophesied of old, that God would do this. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, and Christ is in me, and I in Christ, and it is done through the Spirit of God. What an amazing thing! And the people in that crowd were so amazed. Thousands came at that moment in time to experience what it is to walk with God, to know Him. 
So let's look a little bit at the work of the Spirit. We talked about the nature, the work of the Spirit. We see this hint right from the very beginning when he says, I will give you another helper. Perhaps yours translation might say advocate or comforter, counselor. You have different words because it's hard to get a handle of exactly what this Greek word is saying. The work of the Spirit. What is the work of the Spirit? To paraclete. Okay, what does that mean, paraclete? One is to, uh, para is to come alongside of, is a preposition that can mean come alongside of. Uh, Kaleo is to speak. And so literally, someone who's come alongside to speak on your behalf. And so consequently, you have these different words like counselor, helper, advocate. It's, it's all of those things. But don't think in your mind just a quilt, all right? Uh, it, it's a little bit more to it than that. It's someone that is speaking on your behalf to you and speaking on your behalf to the Father and speaking on your behalf to the enemy. Wherever you go, this one is coming alongside of you speaking on your behalf. So, when your heart condemns you, When you say, I'm not worthy. How can this be that I have got this love? How could it be that God would care one bit of this time and this place in the middle of the galaxy? One individual, how can that be? And a heart condemns us. And how could it be that we can die and think we'll have a place in heaven? How could it be that we have God's Spirit in us? How can that be? The Holy Spirit comes and and comes alongside of us, speaks on behalf. 1 John 3 19 and 20, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever a heart condemns us, God is greater than a heart and he knows everything. God speaks on my behalf to me when my own heart condemns me. And Hebrews chapter 13 says, keep your life free from love of of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So he can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me when things are in dire situations and we look like we don't have what we need to make it through the day to say, God, can it really be that I'm content with you? Can it really be that you will help me through? The Spirit of God speaks on our behalf and says, I will take care of it if you will treasure me. If you will be filled with me and not possessions and not things, let me satisfy you. In Isaiah 43, verse 1 and 2, Now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. When you are walking and you are thinking, Oh God, I wish I could fly away from this stuff that's going on around me. How can it be that I have to go through this? The Spirit of God speaks on my behalf. Know that when you walk through those days, the Spirit of God is walking with you and speaking on your behalf before the Father and to your own heart. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walked in the fires. The king looked and said, Did we not throw in three? Look, I see a fourth, and he looks like the Son of Man walking with them. 
You wonder what the son of man was saying to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Oh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God is for you. Though the kings of the world are against you, though the fires are burning, I will walk with you and you will not be sins and you will not even have the smell of this smoke upon you. He's called alongside. He's our paraclete. He is our counselor. Even before the Father. Before the Father. Romans 8, verse 26 and 28. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts know what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Here's the thing that you need to understand. As I'm praying, all the while the Spirit of God is praying on my behalf, speaking... Before the Father. Sometimes we read this. We think, okay, with groanings too deep for words. And some have come to understand that this is the basis behind a prayer language where they start um, leaving language as we know it and start utterings, um, things that we cannot understand. And they say, well, this is what the Spirit of God will will lead us to is that we start uh, doing prayer languages which no one can understand is these utterings that... That, uh, that, no, that no one can discern. And this is kind of their basis for that. The only problem with that is that this idea of speaking in tongues done by the Spirit here in Romans 8, 26 and 28 it talks about the Spirit of God interceding for all believers. But in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 30, it talks about speaking tongue that's not for all believers. Okay? So Romans 8 is applied to all believers. 1 Corinthians 12 is applied to those who are just gifted with this. And so I would say that Romans 8 is not a good basis for a prayer language. And the second thing is that when it says it cannot be uttered, it means it cannot be uttered. In other words, it's not, it cannot be uttered in English. It cannot be uttered in Spanish. It just cannot be uttered. And so sounds coming forth is uttering. All right, and, and so I just want to bring some thoughts to that as this is often the basis for this type of thinking. But the great comfort in this is to know, like in 1 John chapter 2 where it tells us that we have an advocate, Jesus is our advocate before the Father, that as I royally mess up and there's selfishness and sin in my life, that there's Jesus the Son who is the advocate and where Jesus is, there's the Spirit of God who is uh, interceding on my behalf before the Father and saying it is just for His sins to be forgiven. It's just because Jesus has paid the sacrifice paid the penalty for my sins, for my selfishness, for my inabilities. I have someone coming alongside of me, speaking on my behalf, not just to my heart, but speaking on my behalf before the throne, the Father, by the basis of Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit. You see, my salvation rests not just on Jesus Christ, but rests on God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And which is why Jesus says that when you're baptized, baptize in the character, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Be immersed 
in these three because these three are one. And they're all working for the salvation of those who will follow and are saved by His grace. So we have a counselor before God in this work, in this paracleting work. But what else does the Spirit of God do? Whoever, and this is verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So in other words, when you want to know if you are saved, the scriptural test for salvation over and over in 1 John as well as here is, are you obedient to the work? Are you obedient to God? It's not whether you feel it, whether you get chills just at the name of Jesus. It's not because you've done great miraculous things, even if you cast out demons, even if you make the lame to walk again. That is not the test. What you see over and over again is this obedience that's in your heart. Now, here's the thing. Okay, let me obey God and then I'll be saved. The problem with that is Scripture. And Galatians tells us it's not by the work of law that we're saved. Ephesians, it's by grace that you're saved. And so it's not just, this passage isn't given to us to say, make sure you obey good. Alright, that's not the point. The point of it is to make sure you're in Christ. Make sure the Spirit of God is in your life. How do you do that? It's simply by trusting, relying on the Spirit of God, on, on the work of Christ and nothing else. To say, I'm going to depend on God. I'm not going to depend on my works and my abilities and, and my efforts to, to try to be holy. I'm going to depend on the Spirit of God to make me holy, to forgive me of my sins. That's my only hope. I am bankrupt. And God, if you don't save me, I don't have a hope. It is this attitude that God is seeking. That when that happens, and humility before God, that God births a new Spirit within you, the Spirit of God. And as that happens, it creates new desires, a new heart for Love. You have a new heart for obedience and you have a new disdain for sin. So, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, this word manifest, we don't use it a lot. One time I used it in an interview one time in high school. I thought that just lost it right there for me. Because who, what 16, 17-year-old uses the word manifest? <laughs> Only those who read the Bible, I guess. It kind of stinks in. But what does this word manifest mean? It simply uh, is to uh, make you feel. All right? To make you feel. It's not just to make known, but to make you experience it, make you feel it. And so he says, God will make it known, make you feel His presence, the Father and the, and the Son, and the love of it. So, the Holy Spirit's work is to make God's love known to us. To make God's love known to us. First John tells us, we, it's not that we first loved Him, but that He first loved us. How do we love God? You love God when you are impacted by God's love for you. The solution, when you see sin in your life, is not to say, man, I've got to work harder. I've got to get disciplined in my life. Perhaps maybe what it really needs to be is to be impacted anew with God's love for you. And watch how God changes you. To make God's love known in us. Well, Judas asked a question that all of us were asking. This is not Iscariot. I want to make that clear. Judas said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? 
Why would you do that? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and will come to him, and make our home with him. And then verse 24, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. God's word goes out to those who love him. He's not throwing the pearls before swine. He's saying there's going to be a receptivity and there is a working of the Spirit of God that they will receive this word. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 goes on and says that if we don't have the Spirit of God working us, we cannot see the glory of Christ. If we don't see the glory of Christ, then we're not Christians. We're not followers. Unless our eyes have been opened to see the glory of Christ. So what does this mean to make God's love known to us? The Word of God tells us God loves us. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. If anyone believes in Him, He will not perish, but have everlasting life. The Bible says God loves us. So what does this mean to make known? It's one thing to read it. It's another thing to know it, to feel it, to experience it. And I'm not talking about emotions here. It is something that is a spiritual activity that God does. Now, I can say that I love my kids. And I think my kids love me. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder, you know. Because they certainly weren't born loving me. Uh, they were born just, I'm hungry, you know. Um, they learn love. I hope they, they'll love me someday. But it doesn't change the fact that I'm to love them. Sometimes they may not feel loved. Uh, there are moments when they feel maybe chastised and they hard understand that as love. But then sometimes there may be a moment where I just hold them, I hug them, or just give a word of encouragement. And then sometimes they may look at me and for whatever reasons, I don't know, maybe I treated them well or something. They look at me and just give me a hug or a kiss and say, I love you. And so when you feel that, when you feel that, then it's a special moment. Now, did I love them before? Yes. But that moment brought experience to it. There are times spiritually when you may feel like, God, are you even there? Understand, every believer, hear me, every believer walks through days like that. When you wonder, God, are you even there? Could it be that you really love me because I don't feel it? But then there are times, well, maybe through Scripture, or through encouragement, or through circumstances, or through some other ways, God just makes Himself known to you. Those are sweet, powerful moments never to be forgotten. It is this love of God that the Spirit of God brings to bear in our life. Romans 5, verse 1 through 5 says this. 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. How do you know and experience the love of God? Through the Holy Spirit. And the amazing thing is there have been times when I just flat out rejected the Spirit of God. Just grieved Him, quenched Him. And when I would know that, I think, by all rights, God, it makes perfect sense for you to have nothing ever to do with me again. There's a passage in Romans that says that God's goodness leads to repentance. And somehow, some way, in the mercy and kindness and grace of God, He works in my life to let me know, I love you. I love you. You've sinned. But it hasn't stopped my love for you. This is the Holy Spirit. Well, <laughs> there's one more thing I was going to tell you about. The Spirit's ability to enlighten us and inspire us. Inspire the apostles and to enlighten us and understand the Word of God. I don't have time to go into this. But I would say to you that when you pray and when you read the Word of God, know that the same one who authored what you're reading is in your heart. So it makes all the sense to pray and say, God, help me to understand what you've pinned. Help me to apply it in my life. And do you think God wants you to understand his word? Do you think the spirit of truth wants you to know truth? It is a prayer that God is longing to answer. If you'll pray and simply pray with your heart. God is listening to your heart. Chad and Amanda, this manifestation of the Father and Son, the Spirit that God has given us, the Spirit of truth, this person that walks with you forever, why did He do that? Psalm 67, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. Seems awfully similar to John 14, 24. The Father and Son will be manifest to us to have this special fellowship with the Father. Why has this happened? Why is the Spirit of God in your life? Why is He causing His face to shine upon you? That your way may be known on earth and your saving power among all nations. It seems to me as I read Psalm 67 that the whole point of the Spirit of God being in my life is that nations, people will hear about God's way and His saving work. And isn't that similar to Acts 1.8? When he says, wait until the Spirit of God has come upon then you shall be witnesses of me. Listen, the Spirit of God has not been given to us just that we'll feel good. The Spirit of God has not been given to us just so we'll be different from the world. The Spirit of God has given to us that the name of God will be known through all the world. The Spirit of God has been working in this church body, working in your life, 
that same spirit is not going to stay here alone. It will, he will go with you, in you, and will be working through you. But understand, I hope you get this, that the Spirit of God is a person. If you reject Him, you reject God. You reject His Word, you reject Him. God has saved us for Himself and saved us from our sin. How is it that once knowing how God has saved us from our sin and saved us for Himself, that we no longer live for Him? And we live for our sin. We have three kittens. Free for the taking, by the way. We would love to bless you with these kittens. Just a little commercial there. Now I'm going to totally ruin that commercial. Because on the front, I sit on the front porch where these kittens congregate. And I was sitting there yesterday thinking... chicken coop out here on the front porch. I'm looking around, seeing stains. I see the mama cat trying to <laughs> trying to clean it off. I'm thinking the mama cat even knows. This is bad stuff. It needs to be away from here. It stinks. This front porch is for me. Not for these kittens. God has saved you for himself. Not for your sin. How is it that being saved for Him, that we no longer walk in the Spirit, but we grieve Him and live for our stuff and our sin? It stinks. It stinks. God did not save you so that you can continue to live for yourself. He saved us, church. To live unto Him and to His great name where all authority goes of God, we are to go. To the night elves, to the Arabias, to the East Asias, God's authority reigns there too. Let's pray.